Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Scholl. I'm at uh, Evening Church, and it's great to be here this morning with you. Let's pray, as uh, we have just prayed, uh, that God would speak to us through His Word. Father, today we pray for open ears and open hearts, that as we hear from Your Word, we might love You more. And we pray that in our reading and thinking about Your Word, You would show us Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. Uh, well, lately I've got into reading a bit of history. Uh, sometimes books about the big events, you know, big battles in the world wars, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes stuff less well known, like the history of the development of the transistor radio. Very interesting. Um, but it's got me thinking why do we read history? Now, for one thing, reading history is interesting. I mean, all sorts of fascinating things have happened and it's good to, to know about them. Uh, it's kind of eye-opening to see what's, what's happened around the world. But history also allows us to understand ourselves better. Uh, you know, consider what formed us as a nation, for example, or, or as a culture. Um, think about the history of Australia, um, the original owners of the land, the arrival of the English, the, the interaction that followed massively important, having huge impacts on our society today and who we are today. Or the fact that Sydney was a, a penal colony and that through uh, uh, the work of evangelicals like Newton and, and Simeon, evangelical chaplains were assigned to the new colony and how that has shaped Christianity in Sydney ever since. But understanding history is also important because we can learn from it and perhaps recognise trends or, or problems and take a different path when we see those trends or problems happening again. Uh, so Anthony from uh, Evening Church pointed out to me an event last week in Tennessee hosted by one Greg Locke, different to Greg Locke of Summerhill fame, you'll be glad to know. Uh, so what they did in Tennessee was they had a book burning hosted by pastor, and I use that word in inverted commas, pastor Greg Locke, reading the world of books and materials of demonic influence. Now, it wasn't so much kind of what they were doing, you know, burning Harry Potter and stuff that, that grabbed the media's attention, but the way they did it. A big gathering, a bonfire throwing books onto the fire. We've seen that before, haven't we? If the, if the event had been having a giant recycling bin and throwing all the books in that, or digging a big hole in the ground and throwing the books in that, no one would have cared less. But mass burning of, material, of books? History teaches us that such an to, to be wary of that kind of activity because we know where it can go. Uh, economic history can teach us lessons of things to avoid, uh, over-speculation, hyperinflation, putting your, all your economic eggs in one basket, selling national assets, corruption, whatever it is. History gives us lessons to consider and sometimes these issues, we see these issues again and it raises alarm bells for us. Now, considering history is a very important theme in the Bible. 
Uh, when Israel as a nation is gathered on the, the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to enter the promised land, Moses gives three speeches to Israel. Uh, that is the book of Deuteronomy. That Deuteronomy is the three speeches of Moses. And the first of his three speeches is History of Israel 101. It's just a lesson in the history of Israel. Why? Because it is vital that these people understand who they are, where they have come from, how God has formed them as they prepare to live in the promised land. Without understanding their history, they will neither appreciate who they are, nor listen to the God who has acted to bring them thus, thus far. So last week in 1 Corinthians 9, we saw that Paul has been using himself as an example. He's been talking about his attitude to his rights, his attitude to his ministry, uh, and kind of exhorting the Corinthians to have the same attitude that he has. But in chapter 10, the focus moved from he himself to Israel's history. And in this first uh, 10 verses of chapter 10, he talks about a very important period in Israel's history. That is the period when Moses is leading the people of Israel, uh, the, the time of the Exodus and the subsequent 40 years wandering around in the desert. Events that happened around 1300 BC. Now, before we take a look at these events and, and why Paul talks about them, I just want to make a quick comment about why he's so interested and why he wants the Corinthian people to be interested in the history of Israel. I mean, Paul, yes, he is a Jew. Uh, he was a you know, well-schooled, he was a Jewish scholar. Um, he is a Jew, so in a sense, it is his history. But most of the people in the church in Corinth are not Jews. Most of the people in Corinth are Gentiles, the exact opposite of being a Jew. So why is he giving them a Jewish history lesson? Well, the nation of Israel begins in Genesis chapter 12. God promises to Abram, later to become Abraham, that from him, this one person, Abram, a great nation will be formed. Uh, not only that, but that nation will be especially and particularly blessed by God and they will be a blessing to others, including the Gentiles. From that very moment in Genesis 12, Israel, by definition, is God's promised people. Or, or to put it another way, they are the people of the promise. Now, in the context of Genesis, this is really important because from chapters 3 to 11, leading up to chapter 12, we have seen the reality of sin and the curses that God has brought into the world because of sin. So, 3 to 11, curse, 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 sin, 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 but chapter 12, through these promises of God to Abraham, comes the rescue plan, the, the hope of redemption, where curse will be replaced by bless. And because of those promises, Israel becomes the focus of the Old Testament. You know, 90, whatever it is, percent of the Old Testament 
is focused on this one nation, Israel. And we see how God continues to work through Israel in the pages of the Old Testament. But as the pages of the Old Testament progress, it becomes very clear that this treasured possession of God is not living up to the hype. Instead of being faithful, they are faithless. Instead of being God's set-apart holy nation, they become just like all the nations around them. They're not special at all. And so this question is raised, how, the, how real are the promises? What's going to happen to these promises that we've seen in Genesis chapter 12? Well, the prophets tell us the answer. God's promise will be focused in on one person, the true Israel, the Messiah, the, the Saviour, and through Him, the blessings of God will move out to the Gentiles. And so, as the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, that is the hope the faithful Jews have. They are waiting for the One, the Messiah, the promised Redeemer. And in Jesus, He comes. And as He dies on the cross and rises again, He does the work of the prophesied redeeming Messiah. Uh, Those who believe in Him, Jew and Gentile, are now included in the people of God. They are the people of the promise. So many of the labels that were previously applied to Israel in the Old Testament, holy, people of God, redeemed, people of promise, are now applied to people who believe in Jesus, Christians, both Jew and Gentile. So, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses the history of Israel not because, you know, it's kind of an interesting snippet from history, which which makes the point he wants to make, but because it is the history of the people in the church in Corinth, whether they be Jew or Gentile. It is the history of the people of the promise. So, what does he want them to learn from this history? Or, or to ask the same question another way, why does he use this history here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Well, have a look at verse 1 of chapter 10. There's an answer there. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under a cloud and that they all passed through the sea. The first thing that he wants them to know is that he wants them to know their history. He says, don't, I don't want you to be ignorant. And particularly, he's talking about this period of the Exodus. Now, these first verses, uh, first five verses, one to five, are just full of Exodus references, the time when, under Moses, after the ten plagues, the people of Israel were led out of slavery of Egypt, in Egypt, through the parted Red Sea, and guided in the Sinai Desert by the, the pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night. Um, God provided them with food, manna, and provided them with water, hence the reference in verse 3 to spiritual food and drink. Um, I think we're, we're, we're to understand that as spiritually provided food and drink. And as we read the book of Exodus, over and over again, we, we see that this is a divinely ordained journey for God's people. In fact, as Paul says here in verse 4, 
they were the people of Christ, the Messiah, the people of the promise. The point that he wants us to realize, he wants the Corinthians to realize, is that is there is absolutely no doubt that these people were the people of God. Not in their mind and not in God's mind. Uh, God says so explicitly in Exodus chapter 19. They've been rescued from Egypt, they've been led to Mount Sinai, He's just about to, to give them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and He says, you are my special chosen people. That is a unique label. It's not just Israel thinking they might be this, no, no, God is telling them. So, verse 5, have a look at verse 5, it comes as a bit of a shock. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, their bodies were scattered in the desert. Well, how's that happened? I mean, they are definitely, absolutely, without doubt, God's chosen people, but their bones were scattered in the desert. And, and the word scattered here is, is meant to give us that sense of kind of chaos, disorder, their, their bones are all over the place, they're not lined up neatly like one of those military cemeteries, no, no, these deaths are haphazard, chaotic, untimely, unplanned, that kind of thing. Well, again, we need to understand the history of Israel. The rescue from Egypt, the, the Exodus, was a great testament to the, the promises, the power and the faithfulness of God. And, and the events that followed the Exodus were a great testament to the faithlessness and the hard-heartedness and the disobedience of the people of God as God continued to be faithful to them. Because having been rescued from slavery in Egypt under God's mighty hand, having been provided day in and day out in the desert by, uh, with food and water, having been guided by God's divine GPS in the form of the cloud, what do, people do? What do the people of Israel do? Whinge, whine, complain, worship other gods, refuse to follow God's instructions, wish they were back in Egypt eating their flaky sausage rolls. There are plenty examples of this sort of behaviour, but let's just think about Numbers 14 for a moment that we read. Numbers 14, we're now a few months after the Exodus. Israel are in the desert of Paran on the way to the Promised Land, the, the destination of the Exodus. Uh, in chapter 13, God has commanded that a small party be assembled to, to go in and check out the Promised Land, which, which they've done and they've come back and they say, wow, it's fantastic land flowing with milk and honey, but also inhabited by fearsome people. And Joshua and Caleb have said, come on, let's go, let's go up and take it because the Lord is with us. This is God's plan. He is with us. How can we fail? And the people have gone, yeah, nah. Saying, we'd rather go back to e Egypt, to slavery in Egypt, than die here in the desert trying to take the land. Now, of course, this is a huge act of rebellion against God. There's never been any suggestion that Israel will conquer the Promised Land because of their military superiority or because of their strength. They are only ever going to win this battle and win this conquering 
because they are God's people and God is with them. So their whinging and their refusal, it's not just whinging and refusal, it's downright disobedience against God's plan. It's them saying, thanks very much God, but we know better than you. And so God's response to that is that he punishes them. Rather than letting this generation into the promised land, he marches them around the desert for 40 years as punishment until they are all dead, except for Caleb and Joshua. Hence Paul saying in verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. By the way, there were probably about 600,000 fighting men plus, plus women in Israel at this time, and two of them entered the promised land. So most of them is kind of a you know, generous way of saying that. Okay, so Paul has given a four-verse summary of that Exodus period of, of Israel's history. Okay, interesting. Okay, yeah, now we know a bit more about that. But what's the point? Makes you more of an interesting conversation partner at dinner parties. Now you can pass the Israel history exam. Well, before we think too much about that, Paul takes us to another set of specific examples during the period of Israel's desert wandering. Uh, one time in Exodus 32, when the people engage in uh, idol worship. Another time in Numbers 25, when they commit sexual immorality with the pagan people around them, and 23,000 are killed as a result. And finally, Numbers 21, um, the passage incorrectly applied by many a parent of young children, where the people complain about the food they are being provided with and are killed by venomous snakes. Again, snippets from Israel's history. But why? Well, verses 6 and 11 tell us. Have a look at verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Pretty much the same idea in both verses 6 and 11. The history snippets aren't just kind of, you know, bits of information for interest value. They are lessons, warnings. Paul says, hey, Corinthians... Know your history and learn from it. But even then, it's a fair question to ask, isn't it? Learn what? Okay, we're told to learn, but what's the lesson? What is the warning that they are supposed to hear? Well, verse 12 answers that question for us. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. These snippets from history are a lesson against complacency. You see, the people who were involved in each of these events aren't just some group of ancient people from Old Testament times. It's Israel, God's chosen people, the people of the promise to Abraham. They are the ones who he has led out of Egypt by his mighty hand. They are the ones who he has said to them, you are my treasured possession, you are my holy nation. 
And yet within 40 years of him making that statement about them, the bones of an entire generation are scattered in the desert by two people. The lesson is, you think you are secure, you think you are in a position of divine privilege and automatic protection and entitlement, look at the history of Israel and think again. Um, If you've got your Bible open, just flick back a couple of pages and have a look at some of the themes we've been looking at as we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul has opened his letter like this, chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Christian people receivers of Christ's grace, not lacking anything as they await his return, security. And yet, we've seen some pretty choice stuff in the the chapters that follow, haven't we? Divisions over leadership, sexual immorality that not even the pagans tolerate, lawsuits between believers, and there's more to come. Paul is building a bringing a very strong warning here don't he says like Israel rest on your laurels don't be like you know we've we've got the badge we're in the club done no no he's saying look at Israel and be warned they were secure and that they were punished for their disobedience don't be like them he says stand firm don't fall, don't be over-secure. It's a message we hear in other parts of the Bible as well. The book of Hebrews, for example, contains a lot of this stand firm lest you fall type language. But here's the thing, to stand firm lest you fall is not that easy, is it? I mean, if it was, if it was easy, if it was straightforward just to say, no, and avoid the problems that Paul is talking about, then I suspect he wouldn't have to spend so much time talking about it. So in that context, you see, verse 13 is very important. Because it's like a, it's like a proverb that contains three truths about standing firm that I think will help us understand the nature of falling and standing firm. Please have a look at verse 13 and these this kind of three-part proverbial truth that there is and remember we're reading this in the context of the exhortation to stand firm so proverb part a no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind that is while there are a whole bunch of things that are are weighing in on the corinthians and, and trying to make them fall There's nothing new, nothing that hasn't been experienced before. So therefore, the Corinthians, like, aren't a special case. Now, why would Paul say that? For for comfort? I mean, when I was studying at Moore College, there was one second-year Greek course that was notoriously difficult. It it was, if you're going to fail anything at Moore College, it was second-year Greek. All right, yeah. Um, it was really hard. Uh, it had this reputation as the, the student killer. Everyone struggled with it, and 
I remember in one class, kind of halfway the semester, the teacher stood up and said, yep, this is really hard. And I can see that you're all stressed by it. And you know what? Everyone finds it hard. So keep at it. You're not a special case. Reassurance? And yeah, maybe. But also there's this sense of, to say that it hasn't taken God by surprise. Well, perhaps Proverb Part B helps us. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Well, this reminds us of the sovereign control of God. Even in the midst, even through the temptation, the, the thing that's pushing in on you seems massive and perhaps overly massive, kind of against God, it actually is still under his control. Uh, in Israel's case, the, the whinging in the desert, the worshipping of the golden calf, massive rejection of God. In a sense, as bad as it gets. But it's not as if God had nodded off or things had, had got out of his control. So why then did they fall? Why did they rebel so badly that their bones ended up in the Sinai Desert rather than in the Promised Land. Wouldn't we say that is a temptation beyond what they could bear? After all, I mean, the easiest way to, uh, to get rid of temptation, of course, is to give in to it. And it's not a temptation anymore. And that's what they did. And they were judged for it. Well, Proverbs C helps here. But when you are tempted, he that is God, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The language here is the, the sense of an army trapped in a canyon, surrounded by the enemy up the top, no way out. But a single escape route is found. In the face of temptation, God provides a way out. Just as God is in control of the temptation, so is he in control of providing the way out. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he will make you take the way out. I mean, the, the airline can buy an aircraft with an escape slide and they can provide life jackets and they can do the safety demonstration and they can lead you to the nearest exit but they can't make you jump out the door. He doesn't say also that the escape route will be easy or painless. He doesn't say everyone will pat you on the back and affirm you as you take the escape route. Often, of course, it's exactly the opposite. You, you may well be ridiculed for taking the escape route. God provided Noah with an escape route, build an ark and escape the flood. What was the reaction of those around him? They mocked him. He, he doesn't say the escape route will always be the message that you want to hear. In fact, sometimes you might think the person suggesting the escape route is unloving or harsh. In love, Jesus told the rich ruler to go and sell all he had. Sounds pretty harsh. He doesn't say that if you are the one suggesting the escape route for someone, they will always be thankful. The people were ready to kill Joshua and Caleb when they suggested a way out of their idolatry. 
He doesn't say what the mechanics of the provision of the way out will be. Maybe it will be a word from a friend. Maybe something you notice in your Bible reading. Maybe a a reflection. Maybe God will use the blessing of Christian fellowship and those around you who love you will be your way out. Sometimes the way out will be a very clear word, a bit of a smack in the face. Have a look at verse 14 for a moment. I'm sneaking into next week's passage. My dear friends, flee from idolatry. If you are caught up in idolatry, there's the God-provided way out. Flee from it. Get out. He doesn't say a lot of things about how the way out will be. But he does say a lot as well. He says, stand firm, be careful that you don't fall, and God will provide for you a way to not fall in temptation as we are taught to pray. I wonder if Israel was so caught up in their self-security as God's chosen people, not only did they fail to see the way out and therefore take that way out, but perhaps they didn't even see that they needed a way out. God promised to provide them an escape route from being surrounded by the enemy in the canyon, so to speak, but they were so secure in their divine identity that they didn't even know that the enemy was surrounding them. So the history we've read today has a a couple of components, doesn't it? We've heard about Israel and their self-security and failure. We've seen how Paul uses that to speak to his original audience in Corinth, to warn them, to exhort them not to fall. Now, theologically, we are in the same spot as the Corinthians. We are living after the cross. Through faith in Jesus, we are saved, therefore we are his holy and chosen people. And so we need to hear this same warning, this same exhortation. We ought not to be complacent. We ought not to to rest on our Christian credentials. Instead, we should be alert to the challenges, the the temptations that are around us and and rely on the faithfulness of God that, that he will provide a way out so we are able to endure. I just want to finish with a a COVID related thought from this passage. Through the through the pandemic, through the the lockdowns, our in-person fellowship has has been tested, I think. Um, I think a a significant consequence of this is that perhaps our our interpersonal relationships, our our personal relationships, our our Christian fellowship-type relationships may have changed. Perhaps we've learnt to be a a bit more isolated, uh, a bit more distant. I think one of the ways in which God provides a way of escape or, in a sense, an alert to temptation is through our Christian brothers and sisters being brave enough to say something to us. Whether it be a a word of encouragement, whether it be a word of rebuke, both are right in the right time. 
it would be a shame that if in our new kind of post-COVID, post-isolation re-emerging, we didn't re-establish and grow our relationships to allow those words to flow. So I encourage you, in your one-to-one -one conversations, in small groups, in, in larger groups, as you can, get talking again, get relating again, and encourage one another to take heed so that we don't fall. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to hear your word. What a blessing it is to know your history, to know the history of your people, Israel. We pray that as we hear these lessons today, that we wouldn't just think, hmm, interesting, but that we would learn, that we would hear the warning. Please, Father, help us not to be complacent. Help us not to stand on our Christian laurels. Help us to be people who uh, are, are alert for temptation, whether it be ours or those around us. We pray in fellowship and in love that we would be speaking to one another, that we would be looking out for where we need to be alert and that we would be brave to receive or to give encouragement to provide way of, uh, to be part of a way of escape that you have provided. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.